But anyways, thank you for sticking around. Uh, I promised to have this panel be uh, the most exciting, despite the celebrity guest in the, pa in the past panel. Um, for decades now, whenever North Korea comes back into the news, um, one of Washington, D.C.'s favorite pastimes is to kind of boldly state that we need a new approach. The old way isn't working, right? We need something new, fresh ideas, right? And then those same people proceed to outline a set of policies that exactly matches what we've done for 30 years with North Korea. Um, so, uh, you know, I, this typically involves sanctions in some way. It typically involves reaffirming uh, our alliance with South Korea, military to military contacts. Um, you know, it involves holding out perhaps the prospect of diplomacy, although uh, with uh, not as much in the way of carrots as sticks, in my opinion. Um, but, and by the way, we'll continue to regularly and with some casual uh, character talked in Washington, D.C. about the prospect of preventive war and regime change. That seems to be a constant. I know Michael disagrees, but we'll get to that. Um, so when my colleague Doug Bandow uh, sent over an article by Michael Oslin uh, that talked about reassessing our U.S.-South Korea alliance in the hopes of coming to some resolution of the conflict on the peninsula, uh, our ears definitely perked up. And we said, geez, that sounds awfully familiar. Uh, because, of course, the Cato Institute has been advocating something along those lines for uh, many, many years. Um, and so we've been almost alone, I think, uh, at least in the D.C. foreign policy think tank community. I think the idea has been less, um, less lonely in, in academia. But in any case, we thought it might be the time would be ripe to bring in other voices and bright minds that were willing to think big and propose new ideas to solving uh, this impasse. So Michael Oslin is the William Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution. He's a best-selling author. His latest book is The End of the Asian Century, War, Stagnation, and the Risks to the World's Most Dynamic Region, published by Yale. He's a longtime contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the National Review, the Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy and Politico, etc. Previously, he was an associate professor at Yale University, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, and a visiting scholar at the University of Tokyo. Rajan Menon, to my right, holds the Anne and Bernard Spitzer Chair in Political Science at the City College of New York. He's a senior fellow at the, uh, sorry, a senior research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. He's a global ethics fellow at the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs. He's the author, most recently, of The Conceit of Humanitarian Intervention. He's been published in the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Newsweek, Financial Times, and so on. Doug Bondo is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's one of our most pro prolific writers on issues of foreign policy. Uh, he previously worked as a special assistant to Ronald Reagan um, and as an editor at Inquiry Magazine. His work has appeared in Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and so on. This past December, he published a study on, uh, for Cato on how we can develop a strategy to in include China and get their cooperation on solving the North Korea situation. He's written at least three books, I think, on foreign policy towards the peninsula. 
Um, uh, he actually just visited the Hermit Kingdom this past June for the second time. Uh, and uh, this month just returned from a trip to China. So I think he has a uniquely uh, intimate perspective on these things. Uh, without further ado, let me invite Dr. Oslin to begin the discussion. John, thank you very much. Doug, thank you. Uh, it's actually my first visit to Cato, um, which, which tells you what's happening in Washington. Everything's just upside down now that uh, <laughs> I'm here. But it's a pleasure to be here. And I've, I've you know, worked with Doug in, in friendly rivalries on Fox and other, uh, other media. Uh, and I'm very glad that, uh, that if I wrote something that it, it sparked uh, some interest. I, I know you said you were looking for bright minds. I'm sorry, all you can come <laughs> up with is me, but um, it, it's only an hour, so don't, don't worry. Um, it, look, I, I think that uh, we're, we're at an inflection point uh, with North Korea for a lot of reasons. And, and I'll be very honest, you know, I mean, if, if I'm uh, in becoming closer to violent agreement with Doug, uh, it's as a reluctant convert in, in many ways. Um, and, you know, I have nothing but the highest respect for Doug and his work uh, and have profited enormously from it while taking uh, for quite some time a, a different view just based on my own readings and, and talks and understandings. But uh, as uh, John Adams famously said, facts are stubborn things. Uh, and I think we are in a different fact environment now that at least, at least, should cause us to think differently, uh, entertain different ideas. And, and I, I, I'm not so sure that I'm ready to say go in a different direction, but at least we do have to think differently. So what, what are some of those, what are some of those different facts that we need to take into account? And when I hit my 13, just cut me off. Yes, sir. We don't have a timer in front of us, so I'll try to keep it brief. Um, number one, we failed. I think that's the most important fact of all. Uh, we have to admit that we failed. Uh, we don't like admitting we've failed. Uh, and, I, and I do actually believe there is something deep in the American character about not wanting to admit uh, that we failed. There are other cultures that sort of embrace failure. It, it, it fills some psychic need. It's, it's not for us. Uh, and I'm often reminded of the, the opening of Patton when I'm trying to think about why we don't, why we don't like admitting failure. It's because, you know, Americans love a winner and, and will not tolerate a loser. And, and we don't want to say that for 25 years we have put an enormous amount of uh, in general, goodwill into trying to figure out this problem, and we have, we have failed. I think the second, the second problem uh, that we face in this new fact environment is that, again, based on how we sort of view the world, and I think certainly view uh, 20th century history in general, is that at the end of the day, the cavalry always rides in to the rescue. Uh, and whether that's in 1917, 18, 1941, 45, 45 to 89, you know, there are a couple of, of uh, missteps in there. But in general, we see that our view of the world is, has been vindicated uh, through the great and titanic struggles uh, of the last century. And, and the areas where we failed did not actually have um, a, a systemic effect. You know, loss in Vietnam, stalemate in Korea did not have a systemic effect on, on the way that, that uh, the world evolved or our uh, perception of our role in it. Uh, and so we're always waiting for the cavalry, meaning in this case, we're just, we just have to try one more time and we're going to figure this out. We're going to get it right. And so we don't want to give up. And there's something actually quite admirable, I would say, and noble in that. Um, but we've failed in, in North Korea. And if you know, the first step to recovery is admitting that, then, then I think that's where we have to be. And that's why I'm particularly 
concerned that the administration uh, from the top on down has reiterated that the goal is complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the North Korean Peninsula. Now, it seems to me there's only one way you can get that, and that is through the use of force. It's compulsion. We've not been able to engage the North Koreans. We've not been able to bribe the North Koreans. We've not been able uh, to, um, to diplomatically coerce the North Koreans through sanctions. So that, unless I'm missing one, leaves just the use of force. You can denuclearize them uh, using that, but as we were all reading in the Washington Post yesterday, you're talking about a major invasion, an occupation army, and something that we really haven't contemplated on a scale I don't know, going back maybe even to sort of on the scale going towards Japan as opposed to what we did in Iraq. Um, so where does that, where does that leave us? Um, it, it leaves us with, I think, having to accept that North Korea is a nuclear weapons capable state, that the fantasy of denuclearization is dangerous, not because it's not a good idea, it's the best idea, it's the one we want, but because if you put all of your energies in this town into chasing that phantom, then you will not be spending your energies on trying to figure out how do we live in a world with a North Korean bomb, which is where I assume we will ultimately get to. We're very, we're very risk averse as a, as a great power, as a superpower. I know, it, you know post-Iraq that seems less tenable an assertion, but we're very risk averse as a great power. Uh, what we want is to be um, someone who who benefits from a system that doesn't change, and therefore we want to be careful that we don't knock it off course by intervening or doing too much. So in many, in many ways, we are, we are sort of hands-off and, and laissez-faire, and we're willing to overlook uh, a lot of things. Does a North, I think the, the, the ultimate question we face is, is a North Korean nuclear capability intolerable to us? Can we or can we not tolerate it? And then that brings you into questions of what do we do? Now, John interestingly mentioned early on that you know, part of the problem in town is that the same people say we can't, we've, we have to do something different and then say to do the same thing. But in many cases, I think that the, the um, uh, prescriptions that, that, not to put words in John's mouth or Doug's mouth, that they might favor and which I'm coming to favor, actually in their own ways are the same thing. And those are deterrence and containment. And so the concern, if the administration is saying, well, we can't deter North Korea, uh, that's actually the change. That's actually new, because what we've done is deter North Korea for 60 years, or at least we assume we've deterred North Korea on the assumption that what it wanted to do was invade South Korea. Um, would it have walked in if the South Koreans all went on holiday? Probably, but did it really want to fight a major and, and very risky war uh, to take over the rest of the peninsula? Yeah, I, I would say probably it's, it's been an open question, at least for a little while, maybe not in the 50s and 60s, but you know, maybe for the past... 10 or 15 or so years. So maybe deterrence, we haven't actually been all that successful because there was actually nothing to deter. But in general, that's been our policy. You deter North Korea. So in a way, we actually are going back to uh, old wine in, in old bottles. The thing that's different, the thing that we have to ask is can you deter and contain a nuclear North Korea the same way that you could contain and deter a conventional North Korea? I, I certainly don't know the answer to that because none of us do. But I would say we haven't been thinking in those terms because we continue to chase the phantom of denuclearization, which is not going to happen. We have to think about what does deterrence look like in this case. This is not Cold War deterrence. It's not the Soviet Union. Containment in the same way is not containing the Soviet Union with a 
worldwide ideology that wanted to destroy capitalism in the West and take over our way of life and the like. So um, we haven't asked the hard questions because we're still at the waiting for the cavalry to come in, waiting for at one moment somehow that we will solve this, that Kim Jong-un will see the light of day, that we'll come up with the right package uh, of incentives. And I think that we are, we are long, past, long past that stage. Um, the question, I guess, which sparked, and here's where I'll end my comments, the question that, that, that sparked maybe this panel uh, was, should we be rethinking our alliance with South Korea? And I certainly didn't write that lightly. Um, I didn't even know how to begin to approach the question because it would be such a fundamental change for U.S. foreign policy that it calls into, into question everything else that we do. What worries me and the reason I wrote it is because I, I, would, I fear that in this town we will be behind the political curve. What I mean by that is that as it becomes evident that North Korea has this capability, that it can credibly target United States population centers with weapons of, of some type of mass destruction, atomic or hydrogen, that people naturally are going to start asking the question, so why are we giving the security guarantee to South Korea? Because as far as I can see, the only reason we are at risk is that we're giving a security guarantee to South Korea. So if we don't give the security, it's a very simple logic chain, if we don't give the security guarantee to South Korea, we're not at risk. Now, that may also not be correct, but it certainly is a relatively credible question to ask. And when that question's asked, and we here in town are just assuming that alliances are sacrosanct and that you can never question America's forward-based presence and the security guarantees that you give, all of which I happen to think, by the way, are, are, are rather important. But if we're not giving credence to the question that's out there, then we may be faced with a situation where we don't control that, that dynamic and that narrative. And so you have to start thinking, maybe, at least thinking, what could we do to more realistically uh, operate in, in Asia in this environment, perhaps where we are rethinking that guarantee? And by rethinking that guarantee, does it mean automatically that we rethink the guarantee to Japan, which is the big one, or the guarantee to, uh, to Australia, let's say, or, or, or even the Philippines? Meaning, is it the slippery slope where once you even, to mix metaphors, open that door, you're forced to go through it and you can't stop it? Or is there a way of saying, look, we, uh, we've, and you have to feel for the Trump administration, by the way, they were given a lousy failed hand to play with. And I think they are trying their best to deal with it, as I think the Obama people did and the, the Bush people did. I just, you know, you can disagree on the way they approached it. But for the Trump people, is there a way of saying, this hand is so bad that you have to fold it, but that doesn't mean you walk away from the table in Asia. Because I'm not in favor of walking away from the table in Asia. I'm not in favor of abrogating the security guarantee to Japan. I'm not in favor of reducing our presence there. But we do have to ask, what is in our best interests? And we have to try to figure out, are we at risk at the homeland now simply because of this guarantee? It's very easy to give security guarantees when there's no risk to us. Risk to our troops, but you know, that's why we have them. Sometimes we choose to employ them and sometimes not. But the risk to the homeland is a very, very different proposition. I don't think we've wrapped our, our heads around that. And I'll simply finish by saying the difference between North Korea and the Soviet Union is if we need to spell out what that difference is. Um, we accepted an existential physical threat to the United States because the Soviet Union posed an existential political threat to the United States. 
that our way of life was a threat, not just because of their bombs, but because of an ideology that would have changed the way we lived. I don't see North Korea posing that same existential political threat. So if that political threat is not there, is it moral, is it logical, is it rational to accept the physical threat? I at least think we are now at the point where we have to question that. I would not say we now rush willy-nilly for the exits. I would not say that we suddenly tear up all our guarantees because that would deal a blow to our credibility we might not be able to recover from. But we, our failures for 25 years, have brought us to this point of having to accept a threat to the homeland and now asking whether we can continue on the way that we've been. I would like to figure out a way where we can, but I'm not sure that it's possible. Let me stop there. Thank you, Michael. Rajan, you want to give some comments? Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you to my friends at Cato, Doug and uh, Chris and Ted for inviting me. I have ideas that are fairly compatible with Cato, and I like coming here only if, because misery loves company. Um, <laughs> I want to tell you very briefly my sense of where we are as regards this crisis, what the existing policy of denuclearization consists of, as I understand it, why it will not work, and here I'll be echoing some things that Michael said, and what we might do, where I will go a fair bit beyond what Michael said, and you'll see why I like coming to Cato. You heard reference in the last panel to probabilities of how close we are to war. Nick Kristof's opinion piece was referenced. I find these probability numbers to be pseudoscientific nonsense. They mean nothing. Now, when a meteorologist tells you tomorrow there's a 50% chance of rain, he or she is saying it against a backlog of a large amount of data. To say 30% chance, 20% chance, 50% chance is just rubbish. That said, we are in a very serious situation because a president in the White House has threatened to use force if necessary. More importantly, the other principles in the region, Japan, South Korea, and North Korea, all take seriously and have said that war is likely. And whereas Mr. Th uh, Mr. Trump has threatened war, so has Kim Jong-un. And the rhetorical exchange between two leaders ours and the North Koreans, in my lifetime, I have not witnessed at such a high temperature and high velocity, whether by tweet or otherwise. And so we have to ask ourselves, what difference does perception and misperception make in this crisis? Because there are two ways of getting into a war. The World War I model, where somebody just starts it because they think the status quo is unacceptable and they're willing to pay the price of war. This one may be a slip slide inadvertent local event escalating kind of war, more like World War I. But the idea that it can be fought there and not affect us is also preposterous because there are 28,000 American servicemen and women in South Korea, 38, 39,000 in Japan, between 200 and 500,000 Americans in greater Seoul and perhaps 800,000 Chinese. So the idea that somehow a war will be cost-free to us involves a definition of us that is extraordinarily parochial. And I think American troops in uh, Korea, our troops, would be quite amused and chagrined to hear it. Nevertheless, the existing policy is one of denuclearization. That is the intent of the UN Security Council resolutions passed in August and September, the most stringent by far. That is the intent of the American 
supplementary bilateral sanctions of various sorts that I, I don't have time to go into. And Mr. Trump, Mr. Mattis, and Mr. McMaster have said that if that doesn't work, they will be prepared to go to war to make sure that North Korea doesn't get nuclear weapons. I'm a little confused, and if I'm confused, people who follow this less closely are probably even more confused about what they mean when they say we will go to war with the United States. Does it mean a preventive war? We will not even allow you to have an operational nuclear capability, no matter what you do or don't do. Does it mean a preemptive war? If you're a nuclear power and take steps that we see as palpably leading to a threat to us or our allies, we will strike you. Or does it mean that we will deter you? And it's not clear. And the lack of clarity may be deliberate, but it certainly, I think, doesn't really help matters, certainly people like me. Now, why do I think this won't work? The economic pressure or the military pressure or the political coercion. There's not a scintilla of evidence that it's worked in the past. Not a scintilla of evidence, certainly not with Kim Jong-un. In fact, one could argue that the more one escalates the military dimension of the threat, the more he will come to the conclusion that nuclear weapons are a must-have insurance policy for him. I don't take anything he says at face value, but there's no reason to disbelieve him when he invokes Saddam, Gaddafi, and uh, others to point out that if they had nuclear weapons, they might still be around. Whether that's true or not is beside the point, but I think that how, whatever one may think of the North Korean regime, and I don't have very much use for it particularly, they have security concerns, and one has to put oneself as best one can in their shoes. Will Russia and China, that did sign up to the UN Security Council resolutions, help us out more? 96% of uh, South Korea's trade is with China, and if you add 14 other countries, including such countries as India and, and Germany and Russia, you have the rest. I think the answer is no. It's even too early to tell whether they're allowing North Korea to cheat. And the reason I think it's no is because they do not want to have an implosion on their doorstep. I was talking the other day to a very senior South Korean official, and he said to me, you know, you're wrong, because the, North, the Chinese are a very wealthy country, and they can pick up the tab on this one. But I'm not simply talking about economic costs. I'm talking about great powers who don't like uncertainty on our doorsteps just as much as we wouldn't. But I'm talking about something else. If you think many years ahead, and believe me, the Chinese do, maybe the Russians less so, the Chinese have no guarantee that a collapsed North Korea would at some future point lead to a unified Korean peninsula that is linked to us either explicitly or implicitly. That to them would be a strategic setback that they're not prepared to use. They don't like the status quo. I think the, the idea that the relationship between Beijing and Pyongyang at the moment is, is okay, let alone good, is wrong. I think it's a very troubled relationship, which is another reason that the North Koreans lead uh, would like to go to having the nuclear option. So what do we do? I think that, oh, I should say one other thing. Another reason why sanctions won't work is you have to make a distinction between a country that is on a nuclear program, which we think might develop nuclear weapons, i.e. Iran, and countries that already have an operational capability, the cases being India, Pakistan, and pretty much now North Korea. The latter, it seems to me, are very difficult to get to reverse policy because there are huge sunk costs and they've gamed in many of the things you want to do to them. Now, what's the solution? You need an entirely new approach to this, it seems to me, and an approach that, frankly, will not sell inside the Beltway, but I don't live in the Beltway, so that's fine. Um, 
The freeze for freeze is only a start. This is the Chinese and Russian gambit. You, the Americans, stop military exercises with the ROK, the South Koreans. You stop um, patrols by nuclear-capable B-1Bs and F-35s escorting them off the coast of North Korea or over South Korea. And in exchange, we will try to persuade the North Koreans to freeze their nuclear program. That may or may not work, but it doesn't get rid of the plan, problem. You need to go much deeper if you really want to change this. You've got to go much beyond Cold War thinking. A freeze for freeze has to be a prologue or a segue to a much more ambitious set of steps. And they would be as follows. North Korea commits to a phased, verifiable, and I want to emphasize verifiable, and I'll come back and tell you how likely I think this is, denuclearization program. At somewhere along that chain of events, we and the South Koreans start normalizing economic and political relations with them. But we go further. Once denuclearization is completed, we begin a phased withdrawal of American troops from the peninsula. Now, the immediate reaction to this, there, there are several reactions. One is, this is a horrific regime. Well, we have dealt with and supported, by the way, many horrific regimes, so let's not get on a sanctimonious hobby horse. The second is credibility, the catch-all thing, especially in this town. If we do this, it's not credible. If we do that, it's not credible. And the logic of that sometimes leads to, I'm going to bang my head against a wall, because if I stop, my adversary will think that I don't have credibility, whereas I only end up with a big headache. I simply do not buy the argument, to put it bluntly, that South Korea is unable to protect itself. And here's why. Take some indices of power. GDP, the 12th largest economy in the world, $1.4 trillion. North Korea, by contrast, between 26 and 28, depending on whose numbers you look at, ranks 92nd in the world, comparable to Tunisia, which has half the population. Per capita income, North Korea, first world, I'm sorry, South Korea, first world, between 26 and 28,000 per person. South Korea, 1,600, about the level of South Sudan. GDP, uh, military spending is a proportion of GDP. South Korea, about 2.6, 2.7%. North Korea, Michael might know better. I've heard numbers between 25 and 30%. The point being that for a technologically and economically more robust North Korea to step up spending, the added cost would be minimal. Now, I don't have time to, to do an exegesis of the military balance here. But in any category you look, what you see is that in most, but not all, <coughs> categories, the North has an advantage. In virtually every other respect, the South has a substantial advantage. So I simply don't buy the argument that we have to be there for them to defend themselves. There may be other reasons for us to be there, the wider region and so on. But I think this is a, this is a Cold War hang-up that it's long since time to discourage. What chance do I have that anybody will take my advice? It's probably lower than the chance that my children would have listened to me when they were still 10 and 9. They never listened at all. So I don't have any illusions about this. I don't think this will go. But if you want to make, put something on the table that is substantial to get the Chinese and the Russians behind it, to have North Korea really confront a serious proposition, that is it. But I think in the end, we will end up where Michael says we'll end up. We will have a nuclear North Korea 
our extended deterrence capability will be degraded for the reasons that he says. It's simply not credible for us to say to the South Koreans, we will protect you under all circumstances, even though we could lose Los Angeles and Seattle. Nobody would buy that. I know the South Koreans don't buy it because they've told me so. I also know that nuclear weapons acquisition is under serious discussion. And somebody mentioned Japan in the last panel, panel before the Richardson panel. I think that's way off to the future. I don't think Abe can pull it off. He's nowhere near it. In South Korea, conversely, the percentage of people who say the nuclear option is worth it is about 60 to 70%. And I think that is where we will end up. So it's a question of managing a nu nuclear North Korea. And we can talk about exactly what that means beyond deterrence. And that is the second best option. The option that the administration is pursuing, and I understand why they're pursuing it, would lead to a catastrophe such as we've never seen before. Mr. Serencioni in the first panel outlined why. So, John, thank you. Uh, I'm going to hand it off to Doug, but before I do, this is precisely what attracted me to the kind of big ideas approach here because, um, and I think it's, it's exemplified by the two testimonies you just heard. I understand the logic that Michael put to us with regard to, um, you know, it, we are not at risk if we no longer have a security guarantee to South Korea, but Rajan's point is crucial. That is to say, we use our posture in Northeast Asia and the prospect of its revision as leverage, as a way to get other parties behind some sort of grander bargain uh, than the kind of near-term freeze-to-freeze type of uh, uh, negotiations. Uh, but with that, let me hand it off to Doug. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. This is an issue which Cato has been interested in for more than 30 years. I got interested in quite, uh, quite some time ago during the Cold War, kind of looking at what was going on in the Far East and wondering, you know, isn't there a chance here to change the dynamic in Korea? Needless to say, I haven't found a lot of support for that within uh, the Washington establishment, so it's, I was quite pleased to see you know, an article suggesting there may be some new thinking out there. Because what you see when you look at American treaty commitments is for, as, as far as I could tell throughout most of the Cold War, people were only concerned about one side of the equation, which was there's somebody evil out there. And there was never a concern or interest in, well, what has happened on the other side, the positive side. That is, you're worried about the Soviet-Warsaw Pact-NATO balance. Look at how America's allies in Europe have developed. You're worried about the balance between North and South Korea. Look at how South Korea has developed. Look at how Japan has developed. That what you're seeing then is a transformation. <clears throat> and I think that's what we have today. And what's interesting is from the North Korean standpoint, security situation is far, far worse. If you look at even you know, 1950, 1953, when the war ends, they're backed by the Soviet Union and China. They face a wreck of a South Korea. I mean, you know, even then, 1950s, North Korean economy was probably bigger than South Korea's, stronger military, stable politically, evil, but stable politically, all of this has changed now. And I think what's interesting, and I think Rajan brought up, you look at kind of the balance. To me, that allows us to think you know, much differently about this issue. 19, in my view, America had to be involved in the Korean War. And indeed, the US helped set up the circumstances of that war with the division of the peninsula, tolerating a leader of South Korea who was unpredictable, somebody we weren't even willing to arm seriously, which of course left that country vulnerable to the North midst of the Cold War, I think there was a reason for that involvement. But certainly in the early stages of the Cold War, 50s, 60s, one I think can argue very persuasively. Without the kind of commitment that we had, South Korea would not have survived. 
The good news is you look 60s with the economic transformation starting under Park Chung-hee, and you know, by the 1980s, seeing the political transformation bringing us a democratic South Korea, that you know, the balance has shifted so dramatically. So even in the early years, there was obviously a risk of war for the United States. You know, the Korean War was an awful war. I mean, more than a million dead in terms of combatants, probably another three million maybe dead, almost that number of civilians, devastated peninsula, et cetera. So any renewal of that conflict would have been extraordinarily costly. And as Rajan, I mean, to, to listen to Lindsey Graham say, well, if the war is over there, you know, it's not such a big deal. I mean, set aside the fact that it's wrong, that America would be involved. The moral aspect of that, of why should we be so concerned? You know, if we, if we want to protect ourselves, who cares if a few hundred thousand South Koreans get incinerated and we wipe out North Korea? I find an extraordinary thing. But what you see today is the fact that nuclear weapons have transformed that. That the, the threat there of missiles, chemical, biologicals, and nuclear weapons for the North, I think has suddenly made the potential cost of American involvement so much higher. And while it's hard to know for sure what their capabilities are, exactly what missiles can be targeted where and what can be put on top of them, it certainly would appear that they have the potential to do extraordinary damage throughout Asia, and at some point they will be able to do that to the United States. You know, and I think you look at from an American standpoint, even today they have the capability to hit American bases, hit American troops, hit Amer you know, cities with American civilians, but in time, the threat of hitting the American homeland, I think, is what is transformational. That you know, we've lived with a, a commitment to South Korea where, for the most part, we didn't imagine enormous damage to the American homeland. And I think in the future, we're going to have to imagine that. And that was always the fear with the Soviet Union. You know, what's notable as we debate this issue of containment and how the administration appears to reject that is that, of course, we spent the entire Cold War containing and deterring the Soviet Union. If you start thinking about people who you would prefer not to have nuclear weapons, I would put Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong at the top of the list. So, you know, supreme leader, as he is known, Kim Jong-un, is not somebody I'd like to have them either. You know, if we're willing to live with and figure out a strategy to deal with a, uh, you know, a Soviet Union and a China, both of which we considered uh, prevented war, both of which we considered trying to take out those nukes, I think correctly decided not to, you know, that we, presumably we can think of a strategy to deal, you know, with uh, North Korea. And I think that, you know, what we see is that the, the threat to hit the United States is very much tied to the commitment. I've seen nothing to suggest that anyone in Pyongyang is suicidal. I mean, to the contrary, all the evidence is that the Kims like their virgins in this world, not the next. We're at three generations, this kind of weird communist monarchy. These are not ascetics. <laughs> you know, these are not people who kind of sit around thinking about the afterlife. They live a very good life today, and they don't really care what happens to anybody who's not within their circle. You know, they're not interested, I think, in dying in a funeral pyre of Pyongyang. So there's no reason, I think, to think that they are, in fact, uh, suicidal. And if it comes to the question of dealing with the U.S. from their standpoint, I think the challenge here, of course, is the starting point is this is an evil regime. There's no doubt. I mean, if you came up with a contest for worst regime on Earth, North Korea would certainly be right up there. You might throw Eritrea in. There are some Central Asian countries I might throw in to that contest. But on a whole host of measures of human rights, 
and other things. I mean, this is a monstrous regime. But it still doesn't, that doesn't exempt us from having to try to have a serious analysis of what they want and why they act the way they do. From their standpoint, America's there. They aren't here. From their standpoint, the U.S. has troops to the south. The U.S. flies bombers. As the president says, the U.S. sends the armada next door. When I was there in June, they talked about hostile policy. That came up at the first session. Military threats and nuclear threats. They're quite cognizant of the fact that the U.S. routinely threatens to bomb them. That, you know, as we say, all options are on the table, which is code speak here in Washington for we're prepared to bomb you. We've used that against Iran and other countries. It's very common. They know what that is. They're not stupid. So they look at that, and they also look at the fact that since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has been, shall we say, rather enthusiastic about the military option. And they're particularly cognizant about that little case of Libya where that poor, stupid dictator gave up his missiles and nukes, which they noted at the time, and guess who got taken out the moment it was convenient for the U.S. and Europe? They saw that. They wrote about it at the time. They talk about that. So the challenge, I think, today in dealing with the North is, from their standpoint, they have absolutely no reason to trust the United States. The Secretary of State clearly doesn't speak for this president, let alone anyone else. Even if you get an agreement from this administration, the next one might decide to take you out. If you're vulnerable, and U.S. behavior suggests a readiness to do that. I think from that world, it makes a lot of sense for them to have nuclear weapons and the ability to hit the United States. And I think that if we were not there in that sense, they don't, again, they don't want to bring on nuclear war. They want to prevent it. They want to not be the target. And from that standpoint, how not to be. I think there's other stuff that goes on. For example, I think nuclear weapons are probably a reward for the military within the internal political dynamic. You know, it's, it's kind of gives, it, it makes them into a country people to pay attention to. There's other stuff there, but I think the security issue is particularly important. And the challenge for us, I think, is that these days, the commitment, there are kind of two factors coming in in terms of America's commitment, both of which put the U.S. at nuclear risk which is the conventional guarantee that we've had, the Mutual Defense Treaty, or so-called Mutual Defense Treaty, as well as the nuclear umbrella. And to some degree, they merge. And the challenge for us is, imagine a conventional war erupting for any number of reasons. Back in 2010, the North Koreans sank a uh, South Korean military vessel, as well as bombarded one of the islands. I mean, at that point, South Korea was really hair-trigger, ready to respond. And what over time, both the grandfather and father, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, seemed to have a very deft touch. Just They knew how, just how far to push and stop. And what we don't know is if Kim Jong-un has that deft touch. And especially if we've got this mano-a-mano thing going on between him and President Trump, the potential for misjudgment, error, you know, kind of accidental war, I think, grows you know, very substantially. But imagine a conventional conflict that erupts. There's some action, there's retaliation. In 1950, North Korea was losing and about to be wiped out, and they were saved by China for China's own reasons, not out of any great love for the North Koreans, but <laughs> they wanted the buffer state. They didn't want the U.S. there. You know, that we had uh, ships in the Taiwan Strait, all sorts of things going on. If that happened in the future, I don't believe the Chinese will save them. China is not interested in a war with the United States. And it's really not interested in saving the Kim Jong-un regime, which means the North knows it's on its own. So imagine a conventional conflict which the North is losing. 
at that point, there is no reason for them not to use nuclear weapons, or at the very least to use the threat, which is withdraw your troops or we hit Los Angeles. And the question is then, what would a U.S. president do? And I think our friends in you know, Seoul have good reason to be very nervous. Even if we verbalize the commitment, would we be prepared to follow through? Because from my standpoint, that would be antithetical to America's interests. And I think allies and friends are hesitant to believe promises that seem antithetical to basic fundamental security interests. <laughs> and that leads naturally to the, the nuclear umbrella, which is, of course, we promise to defend with nuclear weapons allies so they don't have to develop nuclear weapons. And that is you know, much more explicit, where if the people we're issuing the nuclear guarantee against don't have nuclear weapons, it's not that hard to make that nuclear umbrella. But if they do, then we have suddenly promised to jump to a nuclear war that involves us if there's a nuclear war that involves somebody else. And we have the same problem. Are we really prepared to say if there's a target list of Portland and Seattle, you know, and uh, you know, Phoenix and Los Angeles and San Diego and who knows what else, are we prepared to enter into that knowing the other side doesn't want to disappear? On the other hand, they know we really don't want to disappear, that we have a lot at stake. And they know that as a great power, we're pretty risk-averse. I think that's the world that we're in. So I think it requires us to rethink our approach. Dealing with North Korea is extraordinarily difficult for lots of reasons. And, you know, the first session got into some of these, and I think Rajan has some very good ideas here. But I think we also have to look at the second side of the equation. We have to ask, are we prepared to maintain a security guarantee for a country which very clearly can defend itself on conventional terms? I just see no reason to believe the South cannot. It is ludicrous to assume that a country with its capabilities could not spend more, develop a more you know, stronger military, and do whatever needs to be. And then the question of nuclear weapons, we need to rethink a policy of non-proliferation for our allies. Two-thirds of South Koreans want it. Good reason not to want nuclear weapons to spread, but this is a world of bad options. There are no good solutions, and the very... This kind of discussion, I think, would have salutary effects for the Chinese. If China understood that it would share the nightmare, that no longer do we protect China from the impact of proliferation, because if, if South Korea decided to get them, I think the debate in Tokyo would be transformed. And that's the last thing that China wants. But I mean, this is something we need to start talking about now, because I think <laughs> Misha said that you know, we're going to be behind the curve on a crisis. We need to be thinking now about what's currently unthinkable as opposed to having events happening that are driving us towards crisis and try to think of a solution. Thank you, Doug. Um, you know, I think even short of big idea solutions to try to shake up the status quo on the Korean Peninsula, <coughs> you know, when I, when I talk to friends and family that are outside the Beltway, not involved in politics on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, they're really terrified of what's going on, and the media depict um, Pyongyang as irrational, willing to commit national suicide, willing to, not even willing, but capable to sort of bomb uh, the entirety of the United States with a nuclear weapon, etc. And then they see President Trump, who uh, is, is a sometimes less than stable personality, and um, engages in uh, insults and rhetoric. And uh, I think what 
this panel and the previous uh, sessions have demonstrated is that there, there's a prudent way to go about uh, policy uh, towards South Korea and North Korea. There's a responsible way and a calm way, a way that will yield um, a more pacific environment uh, in which to discuss and do diplomacy and determine military posture, et cetera. And then there's a way to make everything worse and raise the temperature on the whole issue. Uh, so with that, uh, let's open it up to questions. Um, you've heard this uh, in the first panel, but uh, please wait to be called on, wait for the microphone, um, announce your name and affiliation, please make it a question, not a speech. Uh, I'm going to ask a few at a time just to get in more. Let's go here, and then here, and then there. Dave Fitzgerald, uh, retired the State Department. My <coughs> question is about the deterrence of North Korea. We've talked about the examples of it, the Soviet Union going back to the 50s. We didn't want to spend a lot of money to deter the Soviet Union then, but we had to. Uh, fast forward to now. Why don't we think more about seriously deterring North Korea? What it would take? We think we, we seem to be jumping at the idea that one nuclear missile that actually comes towards the U.S. has got the U.S. defeated. It's this sort of uh, post-9-11 mentality, perhaps, in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party that's got everybody on edge, but there, nobody's thinking about the really way to deter it. How, many, how much more defense spending how much more uh, deployments in, in and around uh, North Korea do we have to do? It means problems for the domestic tax cuts and things like that, but that's, what, that's the kind of thinking that's really needed. Okay, and the lady in the red here and to her left. Hi, Stephanie Cook, um, Nuclear Intelligence Weekly. Um, I have two questions. One, um, if, you, if you basically let the South Koreans develop nuclear weapons, uh, doesn't that propel Japan to do the same far more quickly than it might otherwise do? And second, have you given any thought to what happens to the whole uh, nonproliferation treaty structure? Uh, we know the nonproliferation treaty itself is somewhat in tatters, but uh, wouldn't this effectively be the end of it? Um, what happens to the ban treaty? I, you know, there's a whole lot of questions that fall out of that, but mainly the NPT, which is coming up for a five-year review. Uh, wouldn't that be a sort of kiss of death? I can just pass it, yeah. Hi, Rachel Oswald, reporter with Congressional Quarterly. Um, what does this proposal for reassessing the security guarantees with South Korea mean in a broader sense in terms of avoiding a war with China 10, 20, 30 years if South Korea and Japan, Philippines, Vietnam um, take away a lesson that the security guarantee is no longer ironclad and also if South Korea does weaponize? Um, what, what, when you're tallying up pros and cons, you know, how does that all fit into it? Good questions. Michael, since it's been the longest since you've spoke, why don't you take it? Uh, th those are good questions. I'm sorry, I didn't have a pad of paper, so I'll try to remember. So, yeah, so the first is deterrence of North Korea. Can we do that? Uh, should we do more? South Korea and Japan proliferation and then potential yeah. war with China. Yeah, uh, so let me take the, the China one first. I think that it was something I wanted to um, respond to uh, Raja, not because I disagreed, but because I do think that 
uh, all of these discussions that we're having here, you know, what are we going to do? There, there is another major player in all of this, and that's China, and, and it comes in sort of peripherally. But it's not going to be peripheral <coughs> if the United States goes to war against North Korea. Um, I disagree a little with Doug on the Chinese would not save the North Koreans. I think they would be very happy to see Kim Jong-un go and maybe even the Kim regime go. I don't think they want North Korea to go, and I think they would intervene heavy and they'd intervene fast. In fact, by the time we got our first troops loaded on the transports in San Diego, they'd probably be in Pyongyang because they're going to want to maintain that buffer. They're not going to allow the peninsula to be tilted or even take the risk that it's going to be unified and tilted toward the United States and even worse, potentially towards Japan. So whatever we think we're going to do, we better be thinking about what the Chinese are going to do, and they're going to do it a lot quicker and with a lot more force than we're going to be able to generate at that moment in time. Don't forget, by the way, our 28,500, I think it's actually 37,500 now, on the peninsula uh, combined with the, uh, in the Combined Forces Command with the South Koreans, that's to prevent the North Koreans from coming across the border. It's not for us to go across the border. It's an entirely different operational picture when you say we're going to go across the border. We're designed to maintain South Korea and defend South Korea, not to drive forward. That's a very different picture, and we don't have the forces in country to do that. We don't. The South Koreans might, but we don't. So our role is going to be very different if we decide to do something. Uh, that, that's number one. Um, I agree on the, uh, the, the proliferation picture. Uh, I don't think Japan would be a first mover, but I also don't think Japan's going to be the only non-nuclear power in that neighborhood. It's simply too risky. And if Japan decides to go nuclear, as Doug was, was hinting at, the Chinese are, because we've, we've wanted to prevent the Chinese from worrying about this scenario, the Chinese are going to double or triple the size of their force so that they have an overwhelming superiority against Japan and South Korea and North Korea and whoever else gets involved. So the, the idea that we, you know, if we, if we let the security guarantee to South Korea go, and I think you open up this question of, of, not, uh, of losing the NPT, at least, I mean, not losing the NPT, but, you know, losing nonproliferation in the region. And that, that's a world we haven't thought about. So I, I would just say, well, we need to think nuclear again. We really haven't done it for 25 years. We took a holiday starting in 1992. We rolled up a sack. We thought it was over. We're back into that world, and we have not worked out all of the different pathways that this can take, let alone how you put the nuclear question, the strategic question, into your entire decision-making chain. We used to be very good at that in the Cold War, and we've lost the ability to do that, and we haven't generated a new generation of people to think about it, and we're there, and we have to do it. Let me just mention two things really quick. One, I think what the administration wants to do is get to negotiations. I don't think they want to go to war, and I don't think a preventive war is possible in post-Iraq America. I don't think we can go to preventive war. We can wage a war simply because a country, no matter how threatening, is launching missiles and conducting tests. I just don't think it's going to fly. I think everything they're doing is designed to get us back to negotiations, and that's going to be a wasted four years. Number two, the thing that I really worry about, on the assumption that we don't go to war and we have a nuclear in North Korea, is nuclear accident. Maintaining a nuclear enterprise is a very difficult business. And we make mistakes all the time. We've made enormous mistakes. The Soviets made mistakes. The Russians make mistakes. Everything from building the bomb to maintaining the bomb to correctly identifying threats so that you don't, as Boris Yeltsin did in 1995, open up your nuclear briefcase because the word about a Norwegian rocket launch didn't get down to the radar operators. I'm extraordinarily concerned that when we get to the world where we say North Korea has a weapon, it's the least risky approach. We're simply going to try to deter them. 
we have to trust that they're going to know how to be a nuclear power, that they're going to train their people correctly, that they're going to have safe weapons, they're going to have safety mechanisms, uh, that, that, they're, they're, uh, that they're not going to have a command and control system that breaks down during a crisis. That, to me, is the greatest danger we face. And uh, I just have a couple of articles up at the Atlantic and New York Review of Books, if you want to look at those, that sort of lay out those scenarios. Very briefly. So let me take the question serially. If uh, your point was that we shouldn't have to spend more on nuclear weapons to deter North Korea, I agree with you. I think it would be foolish to do it because we have, even after the SORT Treaty, more than enough to cover that contingency. On your point, I very much sympathize with the kind of work that you do, but I think if you have a world in which there's a certain weapon that a select group of countries have and say they will never relinquish, and it's the ultimate weapon, it's also the weapon that's a pathway to prestige, note the one thing that all Security Council members have in common, not all countries in the world will want it, but some subset will want it, and they will go after it with as much determination as possible, as witness India and Pakistan. India, by the way, we sanctioned, and all of a sudden, they are the great uh, ally against China. I don't object to that policy necessarily, but we have a civilian nuclear cooperation agreement with them. So the, uh, the, the, the thinking is that at some point, the world will get used to it. Whether they'll get used to nuclear North Korea, I don't know. Your question about um, China and what will this do to our ability to deter China uh, from intimidating, attacking our neighbors. I think if you think 15 years out, regardless of what happens in Korea, that is simply going to become a much harder proposition because the Chinese strategy, as I read it in the next 10 years, 15 years, is not to defeat the United States force on force in a global war. That would be wrong and impossible for many things. It is simply to raise the level of risk that we have to take to project our forces into the region and that risk has been raised not only because of indigenous Chinese development, but because of the weapons platforms the Chinese raised from Russia. So regardless of what happens in Korea, that is going to be a problem. If I were Japan and if I were South Korea, I would not be betting on the United States to cater to my defense needs uh, over the next 15 years because the risks to us are simply going to, to uh, rise. <clears throat> on Michael's point, very quickly, I don't want to suggest that because the default is a nuclear North Korea, that that's a benign outcome. It's not a benign outcome, and there are many problems attached to it. Uh, command and control, the safety of nuclear weapons, and so on. This may require us, as we did in the, in the post-Soviet case with Russia, to get together with the Russians and the Chinese and to prevent the kind of thing that Scott Sagan spoke, speaks of in his book, Nuclear Nightmares, false positives, software gone wrong, and so on. You, you need a nuclear North Korea that, minimally speaking, has a deterrent that somehow through some faulty signaling or some circuit being blown doesn't launch an attack for fear that it is under attack. So the management issue has to be thought out very carefully, and there's not enough time for us to have a discussion about it here. Nor is there, I should say, in the ideas that I had about uh, phasing out our military pre presence and how the phasing would work and so on, there are nuts and bolts issues that are very complicated there, but that's what negotiators are for. This is a forum for just very general ideas. I would actually agree uh, with Michael that, in fact, there's, I think, a chance of Chinese intervention in a number of circumstances. I don't think they would intervene in an ongoing conflict. I think they would try to preempt that 
by salvaging some kind of a buffer state. And that could be the case even if it's an implosion as a result of sanctions or something else. I could easily see China moving in, trying to put in place a compliant regime <coughs> that would kind of safeguard their interests without the kind of problems that we see. Um, you know, the question of, you know, what do we need to do to deter, my reaction is we need to change the dynamic so it's not so much we, but others. That is, what should South Korea do to deter? We have a sufficient nuclear force that would deter any country on Earth, including the North Koreans. I think it really is time to say those actors who are most threatened should do more. That if they view themselves as being threatened, it's really time for them to do it as opposed to us. Congressional Budget Office tells us that a decade from now we will have trillion dollar deficits, <coughs> even without a financial crisis. I would not want to be the politician going out to American retirement homes explaining we must cut Medicare and Social Security because the Japanese and the South Koreans really don't want to spend more and those poor Europeans, it's terrible, they have to face this threat and they don't want to spend more. It's not going to be a very politically viable option. On the NPT, I think nonproliferation is worthwhile, but we've always been willing to set that aside. You can argue perhaps incorrectly, no one that I'm aware of in America worries much about Israel having nuclear weapons. We decided to come to a conclusion with, with India that I think makes sense. Sanctions were not going to stop them. You know, that do you accommodate, do you work with them, do you kind of use that as part of your security, as opposed to put yourself a perpetual antagonism with a potential great power that in fact I think is useful as a counterweight to China. You know, and I think that's the question we have to ask here. Are we prepared to go to war to try to maintain a regime that already has very major you know, fractures in it I think we have to be very practical and pragmatic there. On the question of China and war, I mean, my view is that what China wants today primarily is deterrence of American intervention in its neighborhood. I tell people, flip it around. If Chinese warships were traveling up and down the East Coast, China was lecturing America on its policy towards Cuba, Beijing was filled with discussions about whether war might be necessary with the United States, Americans would not react well. And Americans would be thinking about military steps to take to try to deter. I think we want our allies to do better at deterring China over the long term. You know, if Philippines wants to you know, main, go toe-to-toe -to -toe over Scarborough Reef, it needs a navy that's flagship is not a 50-year-old U.S. Coast Guard vessel. Uh, and I don't want to have them drag us into a conflict. One of the challenges of alliances is that alliances can you know, end up being transmission belts of war. If I know the great superpowers behind me, I will respond very differently. And that, I think, is the danger there. We have to be looking at that dynamic so we don't end up in a war with China over interests that, from our standpoint, are at best peripheral, even if they're very significant for allied countries. Technically, we're out of time, but I want to see if I can get two more questions in. Um, we'll cut into lunch just a bit. Uh, it's, it's, it's a cold meal, so don't worry. Um, we'll go right here on the aisle, and uh, if anyone else... Yeah, and then in the middle there, the center. Joe Bosco, formerly with the Defense Department. I wanted to comment on the uh, evolution of Michael's thinking vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Doug Bando. I've admired both of your writings over the years for different reasons. But as I understand, uh, Michael, you, ha you made three major points. One, you disagreed with, with uh, uh, Doug's analysis for many years. Two, you finally came to the conclusion that our policy in North Korea has failed. And three, uh, since it has failed, you now think that Doug's analysis was right. Uh, I think you were right to oppose his thinking in the first place. I think you're right that our policy has failed. 
but I think uh, you've made a mistake in uh, accepting his position. And let me give you the reason why. <clears throat> There's someone else who believes, as you do, that our policy has failed. His name is Donald Trump, and he is taking a new approach. We have not tried everything that was possible over the years. We've tried sanctions up to a point. We've tried threats. We've tried negotiations ad infinitum. But Trump is the first one, it seems to me, who has put the pin, the donkey, the tail on China's donkey and said, you really have to solve this because you helped create it. China has enabled North Korea over decades by protecting it at the Security Council, by providing the economic support it needed uh, to sustain its regime. So it comes down to this. Both Doug and Governor Richardson early said that the North Korean regime is not suicidal. It may be erratic and unpredictable and all the rest, but it's not suicidal. Its preservation of power is the main goal. Then how would it react if China gave an actual ultimatum to North Korea and said, we are going to cut off your oil. We are going to stop buying your coal. We're going to stop providing food, etc., etc. All the things that, that keep that regime in power. And if it were a credible threat, if North Korea really thought China would do it, if, if, if Pyongyang is not suicidal, why would they reject the ultimatum? Why would they say, no, we prefer uh, regime collapse to accepting your terms? So there's the, there's the thing. I, I really would like to hear your analysis of how China can really exert pressure that it has not done so far. Gentleman in glasses in the center that had his hand up, and then we'll conclude. Dave Rossman, Department of Defense, retired. Um, I'm just curious about to what extent does uh, Kim represent the leadership? We, we've had these vague references to leadership change, and we seem to think about Tomahawk missiles going in. Um, what if he were gone by some other means than us taking him out? What would happen there? Would the would things just continue to march the way they are now? And the second thing I'm a little bit nervous about, it seems like there's a there's a difference now between what has happened in the past, namely the the rate at which they are progressing for their their nukes and their missile development. While we talk and all the talk about diplomacy, they're not stopping that chain of events. Michael, one of those was directed towards you. I'll just take that one. Well, Joe, if I got two-thirds of your approval, I'm, I'm happy. That's a win. So, uh, um, no, I, I, look, and I, and I, and I said I, I'm, I'm not all the way there yet, and I agree with you that we, we certainly didn't try everything, um, even vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. You know, serious sanctions, Banco Delta Asia multiplied, you know, numbers of times. And forget about, you know, the regime in China directly, you know, the secondary sanctions on its banks and, and so on and so forth. But this is also the Heisenberg principle, right? It's, it's a different North Korea than when we could have tried that 10 years ago or five years ago or 15 years ago. I, I'm, my concern is that it has moved so far down the road. It is, it is on the, the doorstep, the threshold of having this capability, a three-generation dream, that even if we start applying this type of pressure, it, North Korea is not going to respond because 10 years ago, who knows where they thought they'd actually get to in this program. Now you're going you're gonna to give this stuff up. So, right, if that's the analysis, then you're, you're, you're sort of thrown back on the Chinese equation. That makes me nervous for a couple of reasons. One is that we actually don't know 
how much influence the Chinese really have. I understand it's 96% of the trade, uh, but this is also a country that is happy to have, or a regime that's happy to have its people eat grass, the North Koreans, that is, not the Chinese. Um, they can probably take a lot of pain, and, the, and we don't know how the Chinese are actually going to react. So I'm against the idea of a grand bargain, especially with the quid pro quo in the front. You know, we give up the quo, and then they never come through with the quid because, uh, because they can't. Second, we've sort of maneuvered ourselves into the position of thinking that the Chinese are these Metternichian geniuses in geopolitics when it comes to Asia and North Korea. And the more I look at what they're flailing about, the more I think that they're probably just as hapless as we are. And, and they, they abetted this monster. They've helped create this monster. And I'm not so sure that they think they control the monster. In fact, I think they think they don't control the monster. Um, so we're giving them a run for their money in terms of haplessness. Yeah, yeah well, we're, we're number one uh, in haplessness. America first. But, um, but, you know, so the idea that we can just turn it over to them uh, and say, look, it is your responsibility. Now get serious about it. And that the North Koreans would, uh, would, would simply adhere is, is, I think, very, very open. Uh, I, I think these are things we should have been doing for a long time. And it's not bad that we do them, and the Trump administration is doing some good things. Uh, but North Korea's moved, and that, that's what worries me. It's not, it's not the North Korea of 1994 or even 2006. It's 2017, and they see that they've, they've, they're very close. So I'm worried that none of this will work. I'm not saying don't try it. I just think that if we make the assumptions that we've done it on the way to go, you know, sort of you know, past performances, um, we're just in a different world, and that's why I've moved closer to Doug. We're going to go to Doug and then Rajan for the last word. Please be mindful that we are over time and have a hungry audience. We may believe that it's China's fault. The Chinese believe it's our fault. They're quite explicit. We're the ones with the hostile policy. They use the same rhetoric as the North Koreans. We're the ones who threaten North Korea. We're the ones who don't have diplomatic relations with North Korea. We won't talk to them. Their view is the starting point is to engage North Korea. You know, and they're very explicit. Don't blame us. No, I think, in fact, they bear a reasonable share of the blame. But, in fact, they aren't the only ones from China's geopolitical standpoint, it has one quasi-ally in the region, and we are demanding that they very kindly turn that over to us, so in fact we could use it against them as containment. I mean, the Chinese worry about both collapse of North Korea and a reunited Korea allied with America with U.S. troops. I don't blame Beijing for not being entirely enthused about that prospect. What I've argued is we need to engage China. What would we do? I think a collapse, I'd tell the Chinese, you guys want to invade and take out the regime, feel free. We don't mind. And I think we have to say the troops come home. United Korea, South Korea could say it, well, it's willing to be neutralized. I mean, I think we need to engage China to get their support. Even with their support, it is not clear to me that the North Koreans cave. They don't believe, at least they say they don't believe the regime would collapse. They're very autarkic. I mean, they showed me the factory where they're making backpacks for kids on you know, how pleased we are in you know, all this stuff. But a half million North Koreans starved to death in the 1990s, late 1990s, at least. It did not change the regime's behavior. They are willing to sacrifice a lot of people in the provinces who fall very badly in their own classification system as not being trustworthy. They may proceed ahead, and then I think we're in uncharted grounds. And then no one has influence there. No one has any restraint. Where that goes, I think, is scary. Trying to understand Kim Jong-un and that leadership is very hard. He's a tough, you know, real jerk. <laughs> Who wants to be against him? He's, uh, he's executed at least 140 top officials, starting with his uncle. Father and grandfather never did that to family. You know, Jiang Sun-tak, who was executed, was in leadership, disappeared, and brought back to leadership under both his father-in-law and brother-in-law. 
this guy executed him. I mean, defense ministers have gone before you know, anti-aircraft guns. He's tough. So wh exactly what other people think is really hard to tell. I mean, we see the executions, we see defections, suggest perhaps some level of dissatisfaction, but it isn't clear that who would replace him would necessarily be better. We just don't know. He wants economic development, so I hope that's a pressure point. They're very explicit about kind of this dual policy, Byung-Jin policy of nukes and economic. Uh, but it's hard, it really is hard to assess what he thinks and what the leadership around him would do if he was gone. So, Mr. Bosco, to your point, you didn't ask me what I'm going to tell you what I think anyway. Um, I think you raise a very, very good point, and it's something that needs to be taken very seriously. So I, I do take it seriously. My feeling is that would be desirable, but I think it's much too late in the game, given where the North Korean nuclear program has evolved, for the Chinese to intervene. That's number one. Number two, and we will have a disagreement about this, I suppose, I think there's been a systemic tendency to exaggerate the degree to which the Chinese can pick up the phone and the North Koreans will simply say, how high shall I jump? I think the degree of mistrust among them is very, very high. The more untrustworthy the Chinese become, I think the more likely the North Koreans will cling to their nuclear weapons. But the bigger point, and this is a step missing in your logic, if I may say so, if, you know, President Trump likes to outsource problems, so he says, well, health care, well, okay, I didn't deal with it, so Congress deal with it. In the case of Congress, he can say, I'll make your life hell and you won't, you won't be able to win re-election. What is he going to tell the Chinese if the Chinese cannot do it? I'll cut off trade with you, really, $150 billion worth of exports? I'll declare you a currency manipulator and start a global economic crisis? What leverage do we have to make the Chinese comply? We have no leverage, and the last thing we should be doing is making threats that we can't follow through on. Taiwan? What about Taiwan? We have lots of options there? Leverage. Well, let me tell you something. In my view, we could disagree. The one thing on which the Chinese are probably likely to face <laughs> fight a war with us is on Taiwan. If you want to press that button, you really better have a plan B, because I think that's a very dangerous game. That'll make the current crisis look like, if not a picnic, then certainly something that is, uh, shall we say, an abstract exercise carried out in the U.S. Army War College. I tend Taiwanese don't want to be a pawn in a potential crisis with China. I mean, they were nervous after the phone call. I mean, if they saw themselves just being used that way, they wouldn't be happy. I tend to like to conclude on cheery notes. <laughs> So, let's let's um, see you do that. Yeah. Lunch will be held uh, on the second floor uh, in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. It's up the spiral staircase that's in the lobby. Uh, there are uh, bathrooms there as well. If you need them, there, look for the yellow wall. Thank you so much. Uh, thank, thank our speakers. It was great.